right, welcome to Keyboard Canvas. This Hello. is our inaugural uh, podcast session, episode one. Nice. The podcast where we discuss yes. <laughs> modern art news as well as art history. We discuss art through the lens of contemporary artists as guests. I'm oh. your host, Joseph Mandel. My first guest is my friend, and currently, I guess my manager, he signed me to his label, uh, Chris Patone. <laughs> Hi. His artist name is Hi, I'm Chris. He That's is me. a vocal performer as well as producer and an artist in many rights of his own. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, Chris? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my name's Chris Patone. I go by Hi, I'm Chris. Um, so like the full spread is like, Hi, I am. Hi, I'm Chris. It's uh, very confusing, but very fun to say um i started making i've been doing music my whole life you know just been in like choirs and whatever uh, i studied music business and um journalism at uh new york university um that's where i started making music in the back of my dorm room because i was really fucking bored between classes and um made a bunch of shitty demos that i well at least that i thought were shitty um that i would just make for myself and have a little bit of fun on some freeware programs and um you know one thing led to the next and a good friend of mine heard one of my tracks and basically forced me to put it out there. And next thing you know, um, I'm working on my first record. I've played shows from Maine down to, you know, fucking Myrtle Beach, LA. I mean, um, I've met up with some pretty incredible people and um, I'm kind of just working my way through level one of the uh, the New York music scene. So um, that's my life now. <laughs> It's been Please pretty exciting. Food, food is kind of nice. <laughs> it's, been, it's been pretty exciting to see your uh, your career as an artist develop. I mean, I remember before you even released your big track, Pineapple Soda. Um, yeah. For those of you who don't know about Chris's music, his number one track on Spotify has over 300,000 plays. It's called <laughs> Pineapple Soda. I would go check it out. It's, it's doing all right. It's kind of cool. It's a great track. Um, we actually made a uh, little bit of a lo-fi folk album oh still out there on the, in the bowels of band camp. Yeah, we did in high school. Uh, <laughs> we went under the name Hardwick, oh, and uh, our our <laughs> our, uh, our little uh, EP was called uh, Breed. Breed. It was a, it was a demo. B R E. Oh, it was so edgy. I love it. I mean, seriously though, like after playing them a few more times and like. You know, you know how people are when they make, I'm sure it's the same thing for visual art, which I hope that you get to yourself because if you don't know your host here, he's, he's a very talented visual artist and dabbles in the music and he's very good at it as well. Um, but, um, you know, once you get past like the cringe of like seeing the work as it is when you didn't know what you were doing, the tunes that we laid down were kind of solid and I do actually want to work on them again. Not to mention, we recorded them in like an 11 hour span of recording sessions. Yeah. And so if we actually put effort with the knowledge we have now, I, I would anticipate that they would be to some degree of a higher quality, at least from your end. I don't know about me, but uh, no, yeah, we wrote go. some decent originals. Um, they were yeah, fun. We can give a it a go, man. There. Um, yeah, I can introduce myself. So as I said, my name is Joseph Mandel. I study art and design at the University of Michigan. Um, I am a painter, sculptor, and traditional graphic artist. So, you know, printmaking uh, in both the Itaglio as well as woodblock form. I've also done other forms yeah. of printmaking as well. I've dabbled in the fashion industry. Uh, I worked one summer for Steve Madden and Betsy Johnson as a handbag design intern. So uh, I've definitely handbags. dipped my feet. Uh, yeah. 
You I'm definitely um, custom handbags. <laughs> oh, I can get into that too. Well, I've definitely dipped my feet into a lot of different realms of, uh, you know, the arts. Uh, yes, I actually did make my own handbags. I bought leather, I dyed it, I designed my own logo and everything. I had my own little company for a project um, for school. Um, so I have, I guess, a lot of breadth of knowledge of different forms of art. Um, my senior thesis was more specifically around painting an art installation in itself. The focus of that was based on um, my feelings and thoughts about my grandmother. She is going to be 90 in May. She suffers Whoa. from dementia. Um, and so my, uh, my thesis kind of uh, revolved around my own feelings and thoughts and reactions to the degradation of her mental faculties through the reactions of people viewing my artwork uh, oh, for that installation. You see, this um, is where this is where you and me differ. Like, you know, all of these, you have these deep underlying meanings in your visual art, and like, yeah, there's there's like meaning in my work, but like, I can't say it as well as you. I mean, there is some deep stuff in your lyrics, my guy. I yeah. wouldn't hold you, you know, I wouldn't sell yourself too short. Not yeah. to mention that, uh, you know, you're you're it's pretty deep, right. and a lot of my art to, is pretty surface level. If I do a portrait of a friend, it's just a portrait of a friend. It's not trying to show the you know, inner depths of their character, you know, it's just, you know, a no, representation I mean, on it, canvas. In some regards, I mean, like, it, it's, you know, it can get to that, though. Like, um, you know, if the person views your painting of them and goes like, wow, you really captured, like, my inner essence, like, of whatever, then you got to it anyway, you know? I mean, like, that's the beauty of, like, I think visual art, especially, is that, like, at any given point, you can return to this very singular object and just view it in a whole different light from whatever lens you're coming to it. So like, that's why I think like visual arts, like very fascinating. It's something I'm not fucking good at by any means for my stupid little doodles, but like you can go back to a painting and just see it differently, like a million fucking times. And yes, songs affect you in a similar way. Art in general affects you in a similar way. But I think with visual art, it just captures an essence of something uh, that, you, you know, you walk by it and you can see it from different angles. It's more tactile than I think like most other mediums. I don't know. Some songs definitely age differently over time, you know, you know mm. um, adding on to that thought, I think like, you know, you, you might be like, you know, in high school, you hear a song and it has one meaning for you then. And then you're in college, you hear that song again and it's different, you know, it hits you differently. You know, mm. you've, it's been, you know, four years since you may have heard that song, maybe more. And uh, sometimes the experiences that came with that first listen and maybe the subsequent listens throughout time, you know, change because, you're growing throughout the time that you listen to the song and it might have a different meaning to you. So I think yeah. all art, music included, um, can definitely affect you in different ways and you can definitely look back on it differently in the same way that you look back on our old work together True. with our album. True. You know, At first we cringed after we listened to it and maybe a couple months after we released it, but you know, now you kind of look through it with a, you know, a different Fresh lens. Ears. Yeah. yeah there's a concept of ear shock too you know like if you step away from like a mix or something for a while that you're just getting sick of listening to like 20 times a fucking day and you come back to it the next morning you you go like oh wow actually never mind i really like this shit like it, it's strange it, i mean and yeah I, I wasn't trying to diminish the fact that like all art can be like you know have flexible meanings depending on like how your life relates to it i mean that just makes sense but there's there's something about the visual aspect of it where it's like you know I don't know. There's a couple album covers. I'm a huge fan of album covers for that reason. You know, like I like the fact that art 
you might look at it one day and just look at it for the aesthetic value. And then you start looking into the details and it's like, it's more of an exploratory experience rather than whereas music is kind of presented in linear time and you're experiencing it as a movement. Whereas art is like, you have to explore the details of a painting. You know what I mean? You have to explore the details of a sculpture. Sure. I feel like it's more like it's tactile in that way. You can explore the details of a song, but it's happening over a linear period of time. Whereas this is a permanent object that you can like explore, change the angles of, look at, especially with 3D art, which I don't know how the fuck you can think like that. That's like, well, I'll add, on, brain shit. I'll add on to like the whole ear shock. Um, I definitely get that too with like, you know, the creation of visual art. Like you can only stare at a painting or a sculpture or print or whatever you're working on for so much you kind of need to take a step, yeah. take a break. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. why I find I have, a, at least me, I can't speak on behalf of every other artist out there, um, but I have a hard time working on a painting and then, you know, being able to just complete it in a setting, in one, in one sitting, um, hmm. you know, I have to go back to it and work. Plus, when you work with oil paints in the way that I do, the nice thing about oil paints is they have a bit of a translucentness. There's, there's, a, there's a nice, uh, feature of building up the oils after they've dried or semi-dried and become a little tacky they they come they come in layers and there's like the light travels through them in a different way there's a there's an added factor of depth that you wouldn't get from really uh doing a painting in one sitting i th i find at least um i think you've made an interesting point um mentioning uh album covers if there is one real way to kind of combine music and uh, you know, fine arts, I think and, um, a great way to combine them is to discuss album covers. Do you have a favorite album cover, one that comes to mind? I've got a couple on my wall, like I was saying, like one of my favorite album covers of all time. Um, and hopefully the, the listeners at home look this up. Uh, it's an amazing album as well. Is uh, It's a jazz IDM experimental like fusion um, from Flying Lotus. Um, it's called You're Dead. It's a pretty popular album. Uh, he's a pretty popular guy. He works with those Thundercat, like, you know, Kendrick Lamar, Kamasi Washington, that whole sphere of, like, very heady hip-hop kind of, and funk kind of, like, revival. Um, and it's, I think it's a Junji Ito piece. I don't know, but it's definitely Junji Ito inspired. And it's basically, like, there's this guy, and he's he's holding his hands up like this, and his entire face is just cut out and you can see like his like entrails inside of it. And there's just this white light coming through the center. And then outside of it's like this very psychedelic kind of um, mandala-esque like a uh, sphere of lights around him. And then there's just like these bodies floating in this void and there's like a heart. It's, it's very detailed, but it all draws you to the center in that like light, kind of like the concept of like, I see the light at the end of the tunnel when you're dying or whatever. And it's just this very like, unnerving but like peaceful kind of album cover and i love it it's one of my favorite album covers of all time so i keep it right on the left side of my bed very creepy thing to look at before you go to bed but it's a nice thing to have because it just makes me look intelligent <laughs> <laughs> call me uh, i guess uh, a little cliche for yeah. those of you who don't know my interest in music um big time beatles fan here uh i've probably spent an unhealthy amount of time reading Beatles information, trivia, whatnot. I would have to say when it comes to my favorite album cover, it's a tough call between Sgt. Pepper's and Abbey Road. Both are iconic. I mean, Sgt. Pepper's, you have a bunch of different little things. You have the, the flower bed in front of them. You have the Beatles dressed up in those 
um, interesting, you know, military colorful uniforms wearing the, um, the medals that they won from the Queen, um, almost ironically. They have the Beatles wax figures represented in the back that were made. You have a bunch of celebrities like Bob Dylan, Marilyn Monroe, I believe Einstein's in there, Gandhi, um, a bunch of other uh, famous people in there. Um, also, for those who are into the Paul McCartney is dead conspiracy, um, there's a bunch of quote unquote clues on both album covers. Uh, for example, uh, there's like, uh, you know, Paul McCartney's like bass is represented as almost the kind of like the flowers that you'd, it was, it's, 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 they've made his bass Wait, out I've of flowers. Yeah, if you look at the bottom of the front of the album cover, there's like flowers arranged to look like a bass. And that's what the instrument Paul McCartney predominantly played for the Beatles. He's known as their bassist. And um, yeah, if you guys feel free to look it up. Um, and there's like a base almost like arranged out of flowers to look like it's something you'd put in front of a grave and it's representing that he's dead. Also on that album, they introduce uh, the one and only Billy Shears and that's supposedly the name of the guy who replaced Paul McCartney after he died in the Beatles. He's the lookalike. Um, they say that in the first... Uh, first song you know let me introduce to you the one and only billy shears they say william shears billy shears is the guy who replaced paul um also on the back of the album uh all beatles are facing you and then paul mccartney you see his back instead of the front of him representing that he's he's passed on also the sleeve that the album came in uh, a lot of records have you know a standard white sleeve it just keeps the record um you know clean and uh prevents it from some form of damage just a way to protect it um, that album has this red kind of like, like drippy uh, album sleeve that's supposed to be like the blood from the car accident that uh, oh, Paul got in. Shit. Yeah, there's I'm a, reading there's... this like Time Magazine article on it, and it's like, I didn't know. I'm gonna go back and listen to this to see if it's true. Like that, there's like recorded phrases that you can hear when you play a day in the life backwards like Paul yeah all sorts of funky stuff dead. like that personally i don't believe paul mccartney dead uh is but dead I, I, I mean it's he a conspiracy died. theory like they're just kind of fun to like yeah look into another like, one oh. that's interesting is if you look at the uh abbey road album cover um yeah. they're all crossing the street um and they're wearing different things so like john lennon's in all white he's like supposed to be like like the the, the preacher you know, like the pastor who's like delivering uh, like the last rites um, for Paul, um, who's being buried. Paul's not wearing shoes. He's wearing, cause you know, you don't bury someone's shoes. He's just wearing a suit, which was the suit he would be buried in. Um, what? Yeah, George is wearing all denim. He's supposed to be the undertaker. You know, he's just in a dirty, you know, denim suit that he can, you know, all right, all right. That's, in. This is where I'm drawing the line. And That's then Ringo is in just a, like a shit. black suit because he's like the At witness the to the funeral. And what? also, there's a white, uh, you know, a VW car, I believe it's a VW car, that's parked behind where they're walking, and it has the license plate that says 28IF, saying that Paul would be 28IF alive. So there's a bunch of little oh, clues all right. on there. Fuck that horse shit. They're adding in the 27 Club now. Like, come on. So, so that's just a little thing. That's ah. um, a little, little, little bit of lore. The Those are two very you cool. Just, like, uh, you see, like, by the way, I uh, hope you're doing well during the quarantine. We're recording this over a uh, classic haha college thing Zoom. Um, and uh, the fact that you're just looking straight at my fucking face and just telling me this off your dome 
is the most interesting part of this fucking conspiracy. I told you, I've spent <laughs> unnecessary amounts of my time reading into this. In fact, I hear uh, where I go to school, there's a bar that does bar trivia and you can submit um, uh, whatever, uh, you know, trivia theme you'd like to see done in yeah. the future. And there's a running gag between me and the host that I submit Beatles trivia and he says they're overrated and he'll never do Beatles trivia. It's a fun thing like that. So one day I will get my request for Beatles trivia and I will dominate. Um, anyway, um, let's move on to the next segment. I think that's a good segue. You mentioned coronavirus. Um, hmm. So another part of the podcast, um, I think a good thing we can discuss is art news um, relevant yeah. to what's going on in the world of art. And something interesting amid the coronavirus is um, Art News released an article that is entitled, Germany has rolled out a staggering 50 billion euro aid package for small businesses that boosts artists and galleries and puts other countries to shame. So apparently, um, Oh, it's the not German... hard to put US to, it's not hard to put the US to shame in terms of artist development. You have no clue, bro. Well, I mean, historically, uh, especially in the 20th century, we've definitely had a lot of artists. Uh, we definitely challenged the world and the growth of visual it's, art. Guys like Pollock and Warhol. It's uh, true, but if you look at A. Alice Neal. Like, the concept of their art is pretty much a direct critique of the society that they were raised in as artists, um, especially when it comes to the monetary value of it. Well, there's also Warhol. post-war, I mean, you know, World War II. Yeah, but I mean, those are like world events, though, that like, you know, like, if you think about what World War One did for music, it made it stupid fucking weird. Um, because everybody was all about existentialism. And like, you know, like, how can we cause such destruction on our earth? Because there were things that happened, like, unlike the world had ever seen before, you know, World War One with trench warfare and just modernizing warfare, and then World War Two, obviously, with the atomic bomb. Um, you know, it made music very dissonant, very weird. 12-tone came into play, uh, music concrete, um, jazz got really loco. Um, but, like, one of the more interesting things about U.S., especially when it comes to, um, to laws protecting artists, we were the first to do copyright law, right? So our first copyright laws came in in, like, the early, I think, 1910s. I want to say 1910s. But here's an interesting factoid is that once laws in the United States become made, it's very hard to amend them because of lobbying. Do you know how much Aretha Franklin made on her song Respect through the radio? I'm sure not very much. I'm Zero. Sure that, yeah, there you she go. made nothing off of Respect from the radio. Only her songwriters did. And the reason why is because I think the second time our copyrights were amended was in the 70s for, for music. And to this day, you don't make any money on transistor radio hmm. because the lobbyists were like, oh, we're just not going to pay our, these artists. It's promotion. And uh, that was at a time where physicals were really a way you could sell. So no one really had a problem with it. You would actually pay the radio stations to play your songs because of the fact that it was great promotion because everybody had it in their car. But nowadays with things like streaming and, and you know, internet radio, which does have royalties they pay to the artists not just the songwriters um you know things have modernized but radio has not and um now that they're going it's so it's such an interesting war between like when the laws were made and how laws are amended in each country because like the uk and canada they kick ass they'll they'll give you canada will give you like i think 
up to $2,500 of starting money as an artist. If you register with their like recording union or whatever exactly it is, I think it's called the Maple Law, where if you're like, if you can prove that you're a very Canadian artist, the government will give you money to fund your first music project. You get like a pretty much a label wow. deal for your first project. We have nothing of the sort in the States. All That's we have crazy. is copyright protection, which is very good, but it's also very flawed in the modern day because no one understands what remixes or, or YouTube culture or any of that is. So that's just my rant on <laughs> the, the reason why no artists are getting real aid. However, I can link to um, a bunch of uh, made funds, like funds that were like privately raised that are coming out. Billboard just put a very good article out about it too. Well, I think an important part about art that a lot of people who are not as heavily involved with the arts understand is that art and the progression of culture and technology are very, very heavily intertwined. Absolutely. One can't exist without the other. A lot of thinking and pushing of social constructs exists through the arts. Um, and oftentimes successful artists gain a platform to discuss um, current movements throughout culture, uh, society, yeah. and economics. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They get their platforms and they, they can use those platforms. They get through the success of their art. And we see that now in a modern context is with athletes as well. Yeah, um, they, they now have a large platform where they can reach large masses of people um, to, you know, discuss social issues, political issues. But art historically has always been a way for people to not only challenge ideas, but uh, push narratives in many different directions. Yes, absolutely. Um, have you ever heard of, um, and this is like a pretty heady thing from my end, um, Apadurai, he's like a cultural philosopher i believe that or he's like a sociologist um i read a book by him and he talks about the concept of um yeah i read a book by someone once so i know what the fuck i'm talking about <laughs> but um he has a concept of the five cultural scapes and basically the, imagine like a like a swimming pool right like imagine like a shady little kitty pool with a little flamingo floating in it it's cute um with like five different food colorings poured in and i think it's media finance technology um ideology and f not f oh god i'm gonna sound like a dumbass right now ethnographies i think is the proper way to say it or you know ethnicities and it's basically like these five things when they are in like when they are splashed so to speak or like you know something happens in one it ripples through the other mm. uh the best way i could describe it is um in musical terms actually maybe not in musical terms i'll use a different one in world war ii I was talking to a good buddy of mine who's this really cool and shout out to Martin Reuter. This is the guy. Um, he's a really cool, like fusion jazz composer from Luxembourg. And he told me this interesting story once about how a tradition started in Luxembourg involving chiclets, you know, a little gum that you get from the, from the people, you know, like, like chiclet, chiclet, you know, like that, that stuff. Or like those crappy little gas station, like you insert the quarter and you pour it out and they're very unsanitary, but like those little chicklets come out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Like the shitty gumball machines. Basically, when World War II started, you had a massive displacement of American soldiers in Luxembourg. And uh, when the war ended, they had an excess supply of chicklets gum because the companies were supporting the war efforts by giving their products. That's how Coca-Cola got big in Europe, um, so on and so forth. And so the soldiers gave the gum to the kids 
they were like throwing out packets of chiclets gum. And, and this is what Martin tells me. So hopefully he knows his country's history more than I do. Um, and so to this day, because of that one gracious thing that these kids saw these American soldiers do at a gas station, for example, if you leave a tip or something, they'll give you some chiclets. Really? Yeah. So it's like you have an ethnographic displacement of American soldiers fighting for an ideology using media, which is the promotion of, um, you know, and the technology to get to these places to, you know, bring all of these five things together and you get, boom, a new tradition about this Mexican gum in fucking Luxembourg. And so most art works on a similar way, mainly in the media scape. And, you know, obviously, you know, the reason to add the fifth one in, because I know you noticed, I forgot it. The reason that Chicklet's Gum was supporting the war efforts was money. So bingo, bango. Economics. You have all five of them working in tandem. And it's really interesting how like that theory, while it's just a theory, um, can be applied to a lot of things on a very large or a very small scale. And I think that art does exactly what you're saying. And of course it's intertwined because everything in those five scapes are intertwined. All right. That was, a, that was a pretty nice tangent you went on there. Right? I um, thought that was kind of fire. Look at me. So, I, know, I know art. Me no me good art. Me, <laughs> me special. So I'm going to jump us to our next segment. We're going to discuss a little bit of art history here. Um, a little bit of, you know, conspiracies about art history. So obviously you, like the majority of people who probably know about painting, uh, know about Vincent Van Gogh. I know uh, a little bit famous painter uh, a lot of people love his his works you know famous for sunflowers and french french uh <laughs> landscapes uh pretty pretty well-known artist many museums throughout the world just because over the course of uh uh around a decade's worth of work he generated hundreds and hundreds of paintings uh he just produced like two to three a day they say Really? Um, yeah he, he I thought painted that he was working for like multiple decades i had no 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 he short. painted from like his late 20s into his like mid 30s before he died and so what we're discussing today is his death um okay so we're gonna find out so um a lot of people a lot of experts believe that van gogh took his own life um after battling many different mental health issues including alcoholism and addiction um he did like absolutely but (laughs) Yeah, let's not. Let's, <laughs> what a what a cool guy. Let's let's, let's try and uh, not make too many jokes about a more serious topic, but um, Sorry. it's okay. Um, but what is interesting uh, is um, if you consider um, a lot of the different evidence into how he died, people believe that it wasn't in fact a suicide. Um, if you kind of look into it, so he was found slumped against a tree with a gunshot wound in his stomach. Um, and it was in a field near where he painted. And, um, that's a very, first off, I feel like what experts consider a strange way to go about it. Um, that's like a very painful way to, yeah, you know, you pretty unlikely that you die instantly from a gunshot wound to the stomach as far as the research says. Um, furthermore, um, a little background evidence kind of factors into this. So first off, Van Gogh would go to the fields to paint, and apparently there are a couple of young boys who kind of would go and not really pick on him, but kind of mess around, you know, play fun, 
Um, Van Gogh obviously probably got a little annoyed by them, but um, you know, they were just, you know, little hooligans. They weren't, you know, trying to cause too much harm and uh, they'd kind of annoy him when he painted. And it's believed that one of them, you know, was probably playing around with a, a gun um, when they were in the fields one day and they were probably joking around with it and maybe accidentally fired the gun, thus hitting Van Gogh in the stomach, him not wanting them to get in trouble he took the, you know, the gun from them and kind of laid against the tree. Um, you know, it was like a way to kind of, yeah, he was eventually, I believe hospitalized and did not recover. Obviously I think, uh, they, they weren't able to heal him, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you know, uh, discussion as to the circumstances of his demise. Um, it's pretty interesting. Perhaps if, if those kids, if they were the ones who ended up being responsible, imagine if they were a little more responsible with uh, the firearm, perhaps Van Gogh um, could have generated more work. And what's kind of a bummer is right before his death, um, some of his work was finally accepted into a show. Um, so he was starting to kind of break through as an artist. Oh. And something interesting too is he only actually sold one work in his time alive what work was that? as an artist. Um, I believe it's a landscape work. I think it's a very like warm toned painting. It's like red and purple. I forget exactly what it's called. Um, you can look it up. Um, his brother sold it. Um, he would send a lot of his paintings to his brother who was an art dealer and uh, he would try and have his brother sell his work. Oh, wow. I didn't know that any part of his family was involved in like the art. Yes, business in fact, um, his brother was primarily supported him um, and paid for his residence um, and oh, his wow. supplies. And in fact, a lot of ways that um, Van Gogh experts try and legitimize his paintings is through anecdotal evidence that is in the letters that he sent to his brother, Theo Van Gogh. Oh. And so he'd write about this painting. In fact, there's a controversy with one of the Van Gogh um, sunflower paintings because he mentions all of the sunflower paintings except for oh, one and people have a hard time accepting that as a legitimate Van Gogh as a, uh, as a result of that. Wow. Um, also an interesting thing, you know, Van Gogh, you, you know, people think he cut his ear off, right? I mean. Yeah, I mean, he has those pictures of himself. Yeah, he painted, so his ear is definitely missing. People actually say it's not the whole ear, it's just the lobe. Um, and uh, there's wow. another conspiracy that he actually didn't um, uh, cut, cut it off. off. Yeah, so what happened was he spent so some time with, today. Uh, yeah, a lot of conspiracies today. I'm not, <laughs> personally, I don't know if I'm a big conspiracy theorist. I think man went to the moon, uh, that sort of thing. But, <laughs> I don't um, think tinfoil protects us against I think the earth is round. Right? I don't think the earth is flat. Dude, I think Everybody knows that the earth is a pentagonal dodecahedron. Come on. Wake <laughs> it's up. A, it's actually Shrek. The earth is like <laughs> Shrek's head. It's in the shape the reason, of... Mount Everest is one of the ears. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, getting back to Van Gogh, um, people believe that um, Van Gogh's ear was cut off by Gauguin. It wasn't cut off by, you know, himself. Yeah, they were all like chilling and like they were homie. Well, so what happened was Van Gogh wanted to try and set up some sort of artist's colony of his own. He wanted to bring legitimacy to his work. Gauguin was starting to become a more known painter at the time. And uh, Theo managed to kind of give Gauguin an allowance as kind of like an offer to have him stay with Vincent, mm. uh, his brother, 
um, to, to paint with. And they painted together for a brief period of time, living in Vincent's yellow house that he's famous for painting and um, for many of his paintings. Yeah. And um, uh, it's said that Gauguin actually, people believe that he was actually a little bit jealous of how quickly Vincent could paint. Um, and eventually, you know, they're both guys drinking and painting and, you know, Vincent wasn't entirely the most stable person as history reports. Hmm. And eventually they got into some sort of disagreement and Gauguin kind of fled. So it's believed that Van Gogh kind of threw something at Gauguin and then Gauguin, who was apparently a prolific fencer who had his fencing equipment with him, to kind of get Vincent to, you know, go back. He probably poked at him and maybe sliced his ear. That's what oh, people fuck. believe. Um, so many conspiracies. Well, what's crazy too is apparently, I remember either watching a documentary or reading something saying that like fencing equipment was found in a nearby like uh, retreat or something like really? that. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, shit. Ravine or something. Some nearby area it was disposed of. So people believe that it was actually Gauguin who right. uh, sliced Van Gogh's ear. Another interesting tangent for you. Um, I think it's, I think it's uh, everything you're talking about is just fascinating. And, and like, as much as I, I've always wanted to get into history, I never really have. Um, but especially with arts history, like there's so many amazing legends about like, you know, these artists that, you know, you, I mean, we've talked about one musician and one painter and we've covered a shit ton of ground. I mean, like, it just seems like a series of bad days that just get fucking worse for this guy. Um, you know, oh, like, Van Gogh, yeah. Oh my God, this is truly I mean, like, a dude. My man just wanted to, you know, like paint this fucking wiggly lines in the air. You know what I mean? It's like I feel really bad for him because he had such a unique and like idea of. I think it's impressionism. You, you would know the style that he. Some did. say post impressionism. Post impressionism, um, but something I think that's lost in an age, especially with modern art specifically. Um, in an age of like constant information, I think are these conspiracies and these legends like that are made about these artists. You know, it's something that I, I focus on heavily in, um, you know, my studies of the modern music business, which is that, you know, when Led Zeppelin made Led Zeppelin 4, whatever the fuck you think about those guys, because some people, you know, including myself, think they pretty, they ripped off a lot of people. But nonetheless, um, you know, you didn't know when the hell Led Zeppelin was pooping. You know, nowadays you see a fucking artist you like on live stream and you know exactly where what their bathroom looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, do you think that well, that's we're very something... connected now with modern yeah. And do you think arts. that's always a good thing? Because 50 years down the line, you know, there might be some conspiracies here and there. But like, do you think we're losing like the concept of like, for better or for worse, like deifying artists to some extent? Like, I think so artists still like, certainly get deified. Well, they get deified, but I think that it's more like, you know, there's no legends uh, yet, at least, about like a Kanye West, for example. There, he's a legendary figure for what we know he's done. But at the same time... But I think that's like, just as time carries on, I think legends will always happen. I think even with yeah. social media, I think it's just a... It's something that time will tell, I think. As time continues on, people don't remember things as clearly. They may... Mm. misremember what some somebody said or something like that and slowly but surely or, you know, you know a legend you give it an, or if you give it enough time you know people will start like pointing out these details and start putting dots together at the end of the road instead of while it was happening you know what i mean where it's like you know like especially with the paul is dead theory i mean 
Yeah, like, oh, the guy is very much alive. In fact, yeah. he often jokes about it. Furthermore, he oh, released yeah. a solo album uh, that uh, is called Paul is Live, I think a little while back. Uh, and it's <laughs> just kind it? of like a play. That's gotta be funny, like for people to think you're not the real you. And like, there's no way you can convince them otherwise. Yeah, it's gotta be, well, it's, a lot of people get argumentative about conspiracy theories. Oftentimes when evidence is brought to light that well, yeah. conflicts with what they believe, they'll dig deeper in on their side. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's one thing when you're like, oh, this is fascinating how you can connect these dots. And it's another thing to be like, I feel like so many people get obsessed with these like conspiracies about people they care about, especially. I mean, like normally non-Beatles fans do not tell me about these Beatle conspiracies. I've heard the Paul is dead thing a few times. You just went into more detail than I've ever fucking heard. So you, Well, you I first heard it from my dad when I was a little kid. And I'm guessing your dad is a huge fan of the... Beatles, of course. Bingo, bango. But it's like, I think when you're obsessed with something so much, and I'm not saying obsession is in like an unhealthy way. I think it's great to be a fan of somebody to the point where they can be a role model. You can relate to the songs deeper. You feel like you have a respite, you know, through the art. But, um, you know, like, I feel like to be truly into a conspiracy theory is a scary thought because there's no way of convincing someone who is otherwise. Yeah, it's kind of like a rabbit hole. You don't know how to dig yourself out of you ever see the fucking video of those flat earthers who like set up the, the, like their perfect experiment to prove the earth was flat. And it's like, they set a light up from a far distance. And as you know, as uh, Einstein has said before, light does bend due to gravity very slightly. Mm -hmm. So they set it up just far apart enough, you know, where it starts, it would start to bend. And they're like, the earth is flat because it'll bend at a flat rate and come right to this hole. And they, they did it. And the guy's reading the numbers. He's like, this would mean the earth is round. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like they just go silent <laughs> and they're still flat earthers it's like they're always gonna be you know people like, who want to go against the tide me. yeah all right i think um that's a good place to call it um yeah sure that was a good discussion with a good friend of mine uh, i hope you guys enjoy and that was fun. get excited for more episodes and more guests to come um i'm sure like Joe Rogan has his regulars. We might have Chris come back a few more times in the future. I'd love to. That, that was fun as fuck. Um, like ruminating on art. But uh, thanks for listening. Um, check out Chris. Hi, I'm Chris. And uh, Apple Music and Spotify, Spotify as well as SoundCloud, has. YouTube. You can find me on Instagram at BoTwizzle or BotWizzle, depending on how you read it. B- Why don't you spell that out? B-O-T-W-I-Z-Z-L-E. Um, All right. Thanks for having me on, Job. And uh, remember, guys, just because I'm not your real dad doesn't mean I can't be a father figure. Oh, geez. All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. This is Joseph Mandel signing off from Keyboard Canvas. Um, Stay safe out there during the coronavirus and um, try and social distance. Um, And have a support artist. Yes, support artists. Have a lovely day.